Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Uh, in today's episode, you will learn how to drive growth and optimization in a chaotic environment. Uh, my guest today is the head of marketing for Shopify Plus. Probably no Shopify Plus, it's the e-commerce platform powering Fortune 500 companies to the world's fastest growing brands like Nestle, The New York Times, Fashion Nova, and thousands of more. I very much like my guest because she likes to get shit done, especially around cross-functional teams, which is quite difficult to do. Prior to joining Shopify, she co-founded a few startups. She led marketing and growth in a variety of industries. And she knows her stuff, especially when it comes to scaling teams, revenue, and customers. So Hannah Abaza, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. So what do you mean by chaotic environment in the first place? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I basically what I walked into when I joined Shopify two years ago <laughs> would perfectly describe that. Um, so uh, to give you a little bit of context and a little bit of background, I started at Shopify a couple of years ago. I joined predominantly to sort of build and scale the marketing team for Shopify Plus, which, as you mentioned, is the division in Shopify that focuses on sort of that mid-market to enterprise. If you know, you're familiar with Shopify, you know that historically it's really focused on entrepreneurs and small businesses. So kind of shifting up market was definitely a new thing for Shopify. And I walked into this environment where there was crazy, crazy growth on a whole bunch of different levels. So from 2012 to 2017, Shopify went from 24 million in revenue to over 700 million in revenue. Over the same, I know, crazy, right? Uh, over the same time period, it went from a billion dollars in GMV, which is gross merchandising volume, to over 26 billion dollars in GMV in 2017. So I can't take credit for any of that because I only joined two years ago. But <laughs> you can imagine the level of like growth and the impact that that actually has on the actual organization. So not only were we growing from customers and revenue standpoint, but I mentioned to you, I started two years ago, 70% of the company has started after me and we are at 4,700 people now. So imagine just adding people to this machine that's already moving at super, super quick speed. And that's what I mean by chaotic, <laughs> basically. Yeah, wow. So that's quite a growth, all right. And so let's describe for us the scenario. You joined uh, yeah. from another company and you joined there. And was there already a head of marketing for Shopify Plus or were you creating yeah. the entire marketing team for Shopify Plus? That's a, actually a really great question. So, and this is where the nuance of like B2B SaaS versus small business or consumer comes in. So Shopify was fantastic at marketing to small business, right? They've done very, very well doing that. But for those of you that are familiar with SaaS, a small business funnel is actually a lot more like a consumer funnel, right? It's free trials, it's upgrades. There's not often a sales team because the, the price point doesn't justify the cost of a sales team. But then when you take a look at what Shopify Plus was doing, um, that's a totally different business model, right? When you incorporate sales, it's higher touch. There's longer sales cycles. It's a completely different audience and really required a different type of marketing team, different types of growth levers, a different approach to what we were doing. So when I came in, there were two people focused on sort of marketing for Shopify Plus. Really, they were focused on the blog. And we went from two people to the team now is closer to 30 people. And it was really building things from scratch. And, you know, it's funny, like the speed at which Shopify Plus 
grew really mimicked sort of Shopify, right? Like we talked about Shopify growing really big, really fast. Um, Shopify plus actually started as an experiment. So as Shopify was growing really big, really fast, a lot of those small businesses that were on Shopify also started growing. And then one of two things would happen, right? They would either graduate to an enterprise e-commerce platform. So they would churn off Shopify or they would actually figure out a way to make it work. They'd hack something together and they'd stick around on Shopify. So the question was actually, how do we retain these customers longer? And Shopify Plus was the answer to that. It was an upgrade mechanism. How do we actually just keep them on Shopify? But the turning point was when we not only saw upgrades, actually started people seeing people migrate back over from competitor platforms. And it was like, oh, hang on a second. There's a white space in the market. And it's really that mid-market that nobody was serving well. And that actually was the impetus for growing Shopify Plus into not just a sales team within Shopify, but actually an entire division that focuses on this. So that that also meant building out marketing. And when I first walked in, honestly, it was like the basic foundational marketing stuff right? There was lots of things happening in the name of growth, but it was super ad hoc. We hadn't really figured out who our audience was. We didn't really have good positioning, which I think is like the foundation of marketing because we didn't have a team to actually sit down and, and figure it out. So that would really be the starting point is like, I started with trying to figure out what the positioning was. And then the other piece to that was, okay, how do you actually sort through now the growth piece, the funnel piece? How do you accelerate that? What is the system? How do you define that? So lots of challenges walking into that, both from an org standpoint, but also from an infrastructure standpoint. So how did you go about finding the right audience and the positioning that goes with it? Yeah. So the positioning piece is really interesting. I think positioning is one of those things that's like highly misunderstood. It's also one of those things that people just gloss over, right? The audience part was a little bit easier in the early years. Plus was sort of figuring out sort of who the right customer was. So you end up upgrading people that maybe now wouldn't really be a customer fit. That part we were able to zero in on a little bit more quickly. The positioning part is always a little bit trickier. And here's the problem with positioning is most marketing teams, don't fundamentally approach it in the right way. And I have made this mistake before as well, right? Where you get into a room with a whiteboard with a bunch of marketing people, right? And usually it's triggered by like a calendar invite that says brainstorming session, which is like red flag for me, huge red flag. Anytime I see that calendar invite, it's like, no, no, what, what what's happening here? So brainstorming session, walk into a room, has to have a whiteboard. And then... All of these marketers start speaking in all of these flowery terms and glowing adjectives, and they start talking about unicorns and ice cream and rainbows. And then all of a sudden, the next marketer starts doing the same thing, and they're just like puking rainbows. And then it becomes infectious. And then everybody in the company is talking about unicorns and ice creams and rainbows. And all of a sudden, you have this positioning statement and this messaging and this strategy that's created out of that brainstorming session. And the problem with that is most marketers don't look at the actual inputs that need to drive what your positioning needs to be. It comes off of the back of a brainstorming session. This is actually, I think, what's fundamentally wrong with marketing in a lot of cases is this like puking rainbows scenario that happens beyond just positioning. I'm sure you've seen it before as well. That's my biggest Pet peeve. And I think pet peeve is not the right word for it because it's, it's really not strong. But that, that's the thing I hate the most about marketing talk and the marketing tactics and all of that. Exactly as you said, it's based 
the biggest mistake is that you base your marketing on your own assumptions, on your colleagues' assumptions, on, on the person who speaks the best English in, on the team or whatever. And you end up with a positioning that is fluffy. You end up using words that you don't understand, like positioning statement and value proposition and uh, sales enablement and go to market and all this bullshit. And you forget the people who matter the most, which are your customers, right? So I'm glad you're showing those mistakes. So yeah, when you get invited to brainstorming session, you know, it's a red fucking flag. Decline. Yeah. yeah. And I think like the actual work of doing positioning, listen, it comes down to three things. And I, I have this framework on, I think, SlideShare. I've shared it several times. I'm happy to send it to you. You can add it to the podcast notes. There's also actually a great woman, April Dunford, who talks a lot about positioning and she's writing a book on it. You, you've had her on the podcast. She's fantastic. So I steal a lot of stuff from April as well. And you should do that. Steal from her. She's got lots of great stuff. But it comes down to three things. Number one, like what are the inputs? that you need in order to fuel this discussion. And there's a lot that goes into that. And that could be customer research. That could be actual data from campaigns that you've run in the past. That could be from internal teams. There's an entire list of different inputs that can go into fueling positioning. And then there is a framework of these are the questions you need to answer, right? And it comes down to differentiation. It comes down to who your customer actually is specifically, right? Your customer is not everybody. I promise you that. It comes down to all of these factors that are literally just questions you need to answer. And then the next piece also to recognize is like positioning isn't messaging. Those aren't the same things, right? How you say a thing is the next layer of starting to build out the messaging that can fuel campaigns, that can fuel experiments, that can fuel landing page copy, all of that kind of stuff. So I think investing the time up front to really nail that piece actually helps across the entire funnel, particularly in B2B SaaS. And the place where it has the most impact is really also on that sales piece, right? Because if you don't tell salespeople what to say, they will make their own stuff up, whether it's right or wrong. So it's incredibly important to have that foundational piece. So we are not going to go into that much detail for positioning, right? Because we have an, another subject to, to talk about in detail, but I'm glad you gave a summary and you still mentioned April. We had her on the, on the podcast and yes, she's fantastic as well. So absolutely check out the few episodes where we talk about positioning. We talked about product positioning and brand positioning and a few other topics around positioning. Because today, what I was really curious to know about is, especially from your experience, is how do you turn chaotic kind of environment where you arrive into Shopify, Shopify Plus, and there was yeah. only two marketers uh, and things were a bit all over the place to a system where you, you knew you could test stuff on a regular basis with a proper process and all of that. So let's go through that step by step. When you arrived, what was the situation when it comes to testing new channels or testing new stuff? And perhaps you can define what you mean by growth and optimization. Maybe I'm forgetting aspects to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think... It came down to a couple of different elements. Initially, when I walked in, very, very small team focused on like content. And we had a few challenges we had to address initially. So number one, we had some infrastructure challenges and some sort of data and visibility challenges, right? Because Shopify Plus had grown so quickly, we weren't necessarily tracking all of the things that we needed to track. We were using a CRM, but we weren't really using the CRM. <laughs> things wasn't weren't being inputted into the CRM properly. And because there hadn't, hadn't really been marketing before, the infrastructure to actually 
set up and execute on campaigns and experiments and even something as simple as an A-B test actually was not existent, right? And there was some previous infrastructure across Shopify that we could leverage, but it hadn't been set up for Plus. So honestly, it was that boring stuff initially was the first step, right? Is like lay of the land, what is what? How is everything performing? What is the infrastructure? What is the data? One of the bigger challenges walking into an org like that, where the rest of it is really mature, is that there ends up being this very pent up demand for marketing, right? So when you get there, everyone's like, oh, all the things, right? And it's very tempting to try and find the low hanging fruit and start to optimize right away because you really want to start to make an impact. And those low hanging fruit for us where, hey, there's a couple of high traffic pages and it looks like it'll be really easy to start to tweak those a little bit and, and get higher conversion. Or we weren't doing any lead scoring at all at that point. So we can implement the out of the box lead scoring and start to see immediate benefit from that. But as you start to dig a little bit deeper, the curse of low hanging fruit starts to become apparent because if you're surrounded by low hanging fruit all the time and literally you turn around and you're hit in the face with it, it makes it incredibly difficult to prioritize. And we'll talk a little bit about how like framework for prioritization, but lots of low hanging fruit makes it hard to prioritize. And number two, most of the time, low hanging fruit actually masks a bigger problem that needs to be addressed before you start making those small adjustments and changes and tackling the low hanging fruit. So for us, it was like, what are all of the things that we could do, whether it came down to more infrastructure basis, like something like lead scoring, where we make sales more efficient, or whether it was more on the CRO side and we were looking at optimizing website, or whether it was literally taking a look at the campaigns that we're running and actually starting there. So we ended up with this giant grid, right, of all of the super granular tactics, but also all of the potential experiments that we could run. And at that point, it comes down to, to sort of effort, impact and dependencies. So right? before we go about that, let me backtrack a bit and talk about the first step, because the first step is if you do not have the minimum data measurement in place, then you shouldn't probably work on the next step. So you said the basics are uh, the, the CRM structure, ability to measure campaigns, and the ability to score leads, right? This seems to be the three ones. So yep. am I forgetting any? Yeah, I mean, the other piece that I would say there is like behavioral, like how are people interacting on the website, conversion, that kind of stuff. And that right. I think that sort of flows through that whole funnel or journey for most people. So what did you choose to set up? for each of those, like briefly, how is your system working right now? Yeah. So right now we are using HubSpot for CRM. We are using HubSpot for marketing automation as well. We have a data sort of layer at Shopify. We have a data warehouse. We use several data viz tools to actually tap into data around that. We also have like the typical Google Analytics, campaign tracking, that type of stuff. The challenge is though that all of that was set up in a silo for Shopify Plus and not necessarily connected to anything else at Shopify. So I don't want to rabbit hole too far down this because it's actually a very complex infrastructure. <laughs> but that's sort of the scenario that we had it. Now, fast forward a couple of years down the road, we're in the process of migrating over to a new CRM. We're migrating over to a new marketing automation tool. And we are actually sort of unifying that view of customers across Shopify so that we have better visibility into all of that data. But that was a we have to start looking at that now 
but we can't just do that. Right. right. And this is where you start thinking in parallel. So that's the foundation. We have to start working on it. What's the minimum viable thing that I can do to start doing marketing things. Right. And then continue to work on the infrastructure piece. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. So yeah, you, you can't go in a rabbit hole of developing this new data warehouse project for two or three years before it's completed. Cause then it means you can't do any, anything else. The second thing you mentioned is the low hanging fruit. And this is something I've experienced myself in my role a few times where it is good. I think when you get started into a new role to get some quick wins out of the way so that you, so that you show confidence, you show impact, you show progress while in parallel as well, working on a longer strategy plan. So before we go into this big greed that you came up with and all of that, let's talk about low hanging fruits when it comes to how do you identify in an environment like very chaotic when you arrived, how do you identify those ones that are obvious to tackle right now, the ones that you did when you joined? And maybe the data one is actually one of the quick win, perhaps, like to set up the CRM and all of that properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think identifying the low hanging fruit really depends at which part of the funnel you're looking at. I think for me, it was a combination of honestly talking to people that have been in plus for a number of months at that point, um, potentially a year or two, if I started hearing the same thing multiple times and I could start to predict what people were going to tell me, it's like, okay, so that's at least, at least an important thing, whether or not it's low hanging fruit remains to be determined. Right. But if something keeps coming up over and over again, it's worth investigating to see like, Hey, is that something that's easily solvable? Right. The data piece came up over and over again, not easily solvable, but (laughs) a couple of steps towards progress could be made. There's a couple of other telltale signs, right? I mean, if we're looking at optimizing from a sales perspective, you know, there's really easy ways to take a look at sort of the data around your sales team, around which reps are performing and not performing and actually sitting in with them and finding the bright spots of like, who's doing really well? I want to know what they're doing. And then you can actually take a look across the board. And typically there's always how do we standardize that? How do we help the rest of the sales team do more of the same? And then if you're looking at like more of the marketing growth related stuff, I mean, you know, anybody with experience in CRO can typically go through a website and start to identify, hey, there's these really high traffic pages that are maybe not converting so well, right? Or these really high conversion pages that have no traffic. You know, that's the stuff that I think your audience is largely probably pretty familiar with already. Yeah, some of them. But I know what I like about those interviews, you know, every time I interview someone on a topic, in the back of my head, I have this little voice that says, you know, what if this person says the same thing than the previous guest on the same topic? And every time it's not, every time there's a new, there's something new coming up and your own experience shines in. And therefore, even repeating the things that have been repeated 10 or 15 times of the podcast are still relevant because yeah. there is this unique angle that you have because of your unique and you have your own experience. So on my side, for the, the low-hanging fruit, I will just finish this side. It's, it's definitely, I would say, a very good way to show confidence and get progress and get some sort of a flywheel starting to turn, right? And you show, mm-hmm. you get some quick wins and then you start, you feel safer into planning for something larger and your boss or your colleagues would feel, will understand that more, that you need to spend time on a longer term strategy once you've done some quick wins, once you have some quick wins in your bag. So moving on to this big greed, I'm very curious about. Before we talk about the three criteria you started to mention, how do you go about collecting all of those tactics, wins, dare I say, hacks, all of those uh, hacky terms that just means the same thing? How did you go about collecting all of those ideas? 
It was diving into whatever data I could dive into. So while it was sparse, there were some leading indicators that you could look at. There were certain areas where you could start to understand, okay, what's broken and what's not and what can we fix? And again, that just goes back to, you know, spending three days diving into Google Analytics, right? (laughs) To start to identify, hey, where are people actually coming in from? That also is, you know, sitting down with people that have had a hand in sort of running campaigns across Shopify. So the advantage that I had is like, Plus was focused on a specific audience segment, but there was also this huge marketing team for Shopify that actually was doing a lot of the things that we maybe needed to do, but targeted towards a different audience. So there was a lot of what I could dig into there to sort of learn and gain context and understand sort of what worked and conversations with people. It really was. I mean, there's no magic to it. Like if you're starting a new role, you need to spend all of your time talking to the right people and digging into whatever data is available to you. And I think, you know, to your point around sort of low hanging fruit, the way I sort of think about it is like whenever you're walking into a position, it's like this balance, right? If you go, if you come in too strong with all of these like really hard opinions and like, you know, exactly what you're doing, people are not going to respond well to that. Right. On the other hand of the, on the other side of the coin, if you walk in and you don't start to add value for a really long time and you kind of have this analysis paralysis, that's also not good. So it's like for me trying to, it was trying to strike the balance of like, where are places where I can start to add value and where are places that I just need to sit back and listen. And that was actually the most important part. And sitting back and listening were the places that pointed me in the right direction to identify the low hanging fruit. So, I mean, I've mentioned some of them, but, you know, for us, like lead qualification was a huge miss. And that was obvious after talking to a dozen people, because you would just see this huge amount of leads come in through the door and there was zero way to qualify them. So then what ended up happening everything went to sales, right? Like there was actually no funnel. (laughs) Everything just went to sales. So you can imagine sales reps trying to churn through every single lead. Most of them were not that good, which is a huge waste of time and energy and money. So I I would say if you're talking to the right people, the low hanging fruit become really obvious. Yeah. And I made this exact mistake you mentioned. I I came into jobs with my big ideas and my big ego and trying to make people believe that my ideas were really, really good and, and all of that, but without doing much. Like when I, when I mean doing, not, I was obviously showing up on time and doing a lot of stuff, but without making progress or me, without winning on stuff, mm-hmm. definitely, as you said, there's a balance between those quick wins and those, uh, those longer term. And you need to balance the two if you don't want to be seen like an asshole or don't want to be seen like someone who is afraid really- of doing stuff. Yeah, it's hard. It is hard. But with experience, you learn it. And this is also why maybe we're going off topic a bit, but this is important. This is also why it's important with your boss or whoever decides on on what you should be doing to get clarity on what you must achieve and what it doesn't matter, right? The clarity of the goal that you have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also one of the things that's tough for B2B SaaS in particular is because most marketers are in this mindset of of more, right? Like volume, like give me more traffic, give me more leads, give me more, 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 more. But that's actually not the right question to ask. The right question is like, how do I get to the desired outcome with the least amount of traffic possible? And how do I get to the desired outcome with the least amount of leads possible? Because that's what speaks to conversion. That's what speaks to quality. That's what speaks to the fact that you're tapping into the right audience, right? So let's say, so you said you looked at many data points. The biggest one is just talking to people, as you said, talking to people internally. Uh, did yep. you talk to customers as well? Yep. So you talked to customers, you looked at analytics. Uh, you mentioned analytics, you looked at the basic of 
the highest traffic, low conversion, high conversion, low traffic? What else did you look at? Yeah, I mean, we looked at some of the campaign data as well. So there was some direct response advertising happening for Shopify Plus. Can I you mean, define direct response for us? Yeah, so search, uh, so Google Ads, right? A little bit happening on some of the social channels, a little bit happening around that. And then there were some efforts around um, SEO as well. There was a blog that was capturing blog subscribers. You know, that was pretty much it in terms of what was happening that was specific for Plus. There actually wasn't much marketing going on. It was a few channels, some SEO and a big ass sales team. Like, that was basically it. So there wasn't much to dig through. And then when you did dig through it, it was pretty apparent where the gaps were and where things really weren't performing as well as they could be. All right. So give me an example. Where was this grid sitting on? Is it Was it in Google Sheets? Was it Excel? What was it? It was Google Sheets. Okay. It was, yeah, big Google Sheets grid. Since then, pieces of it have moved, but I'm pretty sure I still have the original. And it was pretty straightforward. It was, you know, here was the initiative or the idea or the experiment, depending on what it is that we were talking about. Here is the expected impact, right, would be the next column. Effort would be another one. So how much how much time is this going to take? How much energy is it going to take? And how many people is it going to take? And then the last column, which in an org the size of Shopify's is really important because things get complex quickly, is dependencies, right? So sometimes the fact that a really key experiment that you want to run is dependent on like three other groups, that might kill it right there because it just might not make make it worth the effort. So um, that was really the doc that initially fueled the first few things that we tried out on the marketing side. So give me an example of an actual line item in the grid, if you, if you can remember. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the key ones where we thought we could actually make a lot more impact is actually just super tactical, low funnel, the contact us page, right? So you click from a variety of different places on Shopify Plus's site, Shopify's main website, um, certain campaigns, you get to this page that's just like basically a demo request page. But here's the thing that was really interesting. And this actually specific change we made and for the better, I think, is we had a link to Shopify Plus's contact page on the Shopify pricing page. So if you go to the main shopify.com slash pricing, there's a link at the bottom saying, hey, we also do like enterprise stuff. Click here to contact somebody. So you'd click on that page, on, click on that link. And it was a significant amount of traffic that would go to the contact page. And you get to the contact page. It's literally just a form. Like there's no words on the page. right? There's no there's no head. There's no context. You get there and you're like, am I contacting support? What's happening? Is this a demo request? So you know, you look at that and if you have any experience in zero, you know right away that like there's no context. People don't necessarily know what they're doing. You're, it's not matching the message of where they came from. So that was one of the first things on the list. And that was one of the first things we actually actioned because there wasn't a whole lot of dependency. Right. It's super easy lift on the design side and on the like copy side. Didn't bother A-B testing it or anything like that. Sometimes you just need to make the change and monitor the results. So it ranged from things as simple as that that could have a decent impact, low funnel, to things as complicated as, you know, building out a lead scoring algorithm, right? And how did it, how did it work with your team, right? How did you involve them? Because it sounds like, uh, maybe I'm, I'm mistaken, but it sounds like you led yeah. this, right? And it sounds like you were the one collecting most of the data. How did you involve your team in this process? 
Yeah. I mean, in the first couple of months, I didn't really have much of a team. Right. So in the first couple of months when it was more investigation and like trying to learn and starting kind of this list of things that we could potentially do. Um, you know, it was myself and two writers that would sort of pinch hit when they can, but ultimately they were focused on the blog and slowly, but surely we started to hire more people and we started to bring people onto the team and then they really drove those initiatives and actually added to them. Right. So this grid started like this when I was there and then totally like grew in sort of size and scope as a team started to come on board. And the reality is, I mean, the goal is always to hire people that are better than you at stuff. So the team's way better at this stuff than I am um, at the end of the day. So as we were bringing people on, not only were we expanding our ability to execute, but we were also just leveling up the brain power, right? You know, since then, there have been multiple things that have been actioned from that team. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. With B2B, like certain types of experiments are always tough because you don't necessarily get the volume that you do, at least in terms of like traffic on the website. So uh, you have to be really smart about what you do and don't experiment with, and you have to be okay using A-B tests as an indicator and then making a judgment call, right? So I would say that it's mostly the team, actually. I think I started it. I created the framework for the spreadsheet and then it was like, okay, go guys. <laughs> so you have this spreadsheet with a few hundred items maybe that your team contributed to and then you prioritize based on the three scores, right? And you have a master score, a formula that says, you know, this one is 50, therefore it's more than 49. Therefore, this one must go before the other one. So now, once you have that, you said something that intrigues me. You said, then you need to be smart about the way you experiment because not everything is going to be like a clear cut stuff. And that happened in my role as well many times where the, what you need to do is make sure that you're not fucking up the business uh, not necessarily proving that you made a win sometimes because there's brand new stuff. And so how do you differentiate the things that you know you can experiment for sure and have a, a solid result from an A-B test and the things that are a bit more blurry? Yeah, I mean, the blurry things typically ended up being things that crossed over into other functions where there were at least some dependencies or, um, you know, some areas where, for example, this experiment for this segment of our database with these emails will only be successful if sales behaves in this particular way, right? right. So. For the experiment to actually work well, you need to incentivize sales behavior in a specific way in order to prove that, yeah, we should be calling at this stage instead of this stage, or I'm making stuff up now, but whatever the experiment might be. So those were the things that were always blurry. And those kind of require a little bit of an exploration phase before you actually execute on the experiment. So the way we're kind of thinking about it now, and like, honestly, we didn't really formalize it until recently, but it's it's very much like... Okay, you have this hypothesis, you kind of understand what you want to do before you actually start running in to do it. There's this phase that we've implemented kind of called the explore phase where like you're actually validating the viability of that particular experiment. And viability might mean, can we actually physically do this with our infrastructure, right? Is this something we can execute in our current CRM? Viability might mean, you know, do we have support of whatever cross-functional group needs to be involved in this? So that stage has actually become really important, particularly an environment as complex as this. I would imagine if you're much earlier stage, that's almost part of the hypothesis process and you kind of know right away. But where we're at at this point, that actually... We can't move forward without digging into the viability piece. It becomes incredibly important. Right. So now you have a way to experiment. You have things to do in your roadmap. How do you organize your team? How do you organize yourself to get them done? Like, how does a typical week look like now for you? Yeah. So that's a good question because we're also kind of, as a team, talking about like, 
how do we want to change things coming up into 2019? I mean, if you look at the whole marketing team, I mean, I think it has a few different core functions. So we've got product marketing, we've got content marketing, we've got sort of growth slash demand gen, we've got a partner marketing and like marketing operations. So, you know, at the end of the day, like the team, we're going through this 2019 planning process now and really identifying like what the main priorities and initiatives are, but also like what falls into the, this is a big, huge integrated campaign versus these are smaller experiments that we're going to run over a series of the next quarter or two quarters. And there's different people on the team that are focused on it, right? So the way we think about it is there's the big broad stuff and there's the sort of more consistent channels that are constantly on, like always on type stuff. And then there's sort of one-off experimentation. So when we think about marketing in general, marketing really falls into four different buckets. You have your foundational stuff, right? You have sort of campaign marketing. And that could be a campaign around a product launch. That could be a campaign around, you know, a seasonal campaign, whatever it might be. You have experimentation and then you have your always on, right? Your email drips, your blog posts, your all of that kind of stuff. So we kind of have this like four box or I, I, at least that's the way I think about it. And the things shift from box to box, right? So what starts an experiment might move to be an always on thing if it's a thing that proves to be worth it and sustainable. So that's sort of how we think about all of the things that we're doing. And there's different teams focused on different things. I would say every team has a combination of high dependency and low dependency projects that they're working on, which I think is important also for motivating people, right? Like, you know, as an individual, you don't want to be constantly working on very high dependency projects because you feel like you have no control over the, over the success of the thing, right? So let's see if I have a good memory. So you have the foundational stuff, you have the always on stuff, you have the campaign stuff, and then you have the experiment. Boom. Nicely done. Um, so the, the foundational, can you define that for me just a bit more foundational marketing? What is it for you? No, that's a great question. So positioning, for example, I would put under foundational. I would say like creation of core assets. So like sales decks and even just like the heart of your website, like the homepage of your website, which isn't necessarily... And there's two schools of thought on this, but like, to me, the homepage of your website should actually more reflect the strategic direction of your company and where you want to be going versus only trying to optimize for conversion. You can do that on other pages. It's that kind of stuff, like the messaging, the value prop stuff. To me, that's foundational. So then you have the always on stuff, as you said, the, the constant, the, the marketing stuff that constantly go on, such as blog posts, writing blog posts and all of that. Then you have the experiment that we discussed where you have this big greed and you test new stuff. And then I'm going to forget the other one, the campaign, where it's yeah. more seasonal based on your product. Yeah. Or, I mean, it could be for us, like campaigns more, uh, it's bookended, right? And it's like a defined time frame. So campaign could be product-based. We have every year we do a thing around an event called Unite, which is for our developers and our partners. There's always a campaign around it. And it's really around product launches. Seasonal could also be like a back to school campaign or a holiday campaign or something along those lines. It's really anything where there's like a defined purpose and um, time frame. Makes sense. Thanks so much for going through all of that with me. I think you went through a lot of uh, stuff already, which is great. Uh, so you answered all the questions I had on this particular topic. So thanks for that. Um, I ask a few questions at the end of every podcast, and I'm curious to know your answers. So uh, the first one being, what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? 
I think marketers need to get better at psychology and I think they need to get better at copywriting. (laughs) Um, And I know those are really strange answers, but I feel like those are two things that will make them better marketers overall. And I know copywriting seems super specific, uh, but there is something really magical about being able to distill your idea into a compelling and persuasive sentence that will benefit you beyond marketing. So I would say those are those are two things. So how, how does one learn about psychology and copywriting? So, I mean, I think there's a ton of ways you can learn from it. I, it's funny, I think, and I think this was on your list of questions as well. I often get asked, you know, what book would you recommend? Or, you know, what resources would you recommend to marketers? So I would say psychology and copywriting, actually, I think are kind of linked together because to do good copy, you have kind of have to understand the psychology. And I always tell people don't read marketing books. <laughs> um, I usually say, and I, I stand by that. I mean, there's lots of great psychology books out there, but the books that are really fantastic are like, the old school advertising books from like the 1960s and 70s, like Ogilvy on advertising, also an Ogilvy one, weirdly, but there's lots of other great ones, which they're escaping my mind right now. But there's one called Unpublished, which is a compilation of all of these writings from David Ogilvy. And it's literally like his memos to his staff and like this you know, manual he wrote. So one of his clients could go sell door to door, like kitchen appliances and you read it. And it's literally like a sales Bible. Like it is amazing how relatable it is to like what we're actually trying to do in in SaaS. I think that stuff benefits you more, honestly, because like the tactics of online marketing are like, you can Google all that stuff. Frankly, I don't like, I wouldn't want you know, people to waste their time unless they really need to learn how to do that, go learn how to do that. But that's easy to learn. And that's easy to access. I would say the stuff that's harder to get good at is is the copywriting and psychology piece. Uh, I'd recommend reading the, a book called The Baron Letters. It's a dad who's in prison who sends letters to his son. And oh my God, this is the best copywriting book I've ever read. The way the way he's talking is insane. Like it's just the, you reading it makes you a better writer straight away because you start copying what he does, which yeah. is basically one of the basis of copywriting, right? It's not about trying to invent shit. It's just you take what is already there, what works, and you make it your own, but you use that as a framework. So he's using short sentences sometimes with like one word sentence that breaks the flow, then it's go back to a longer one. The flow is perfect and the tone is so personable. If if every marketer was were like writing this way, I think the internet would be oh my god, so much better to browse. But hey, not everyone is reading those books. Thank God. Yeah, super undervalued skill for sure. Absolutely. So apart from those two resources that you shared, is there another one you recommend for listeners? I think it really depends on what you're after. The Conversion Excel site has a great blog. So when it comes to like very actionable tactical tips, I definitely would recommend their blog. I think that there's a lot of good blogs around like B2B and B2B marketing. It just really depends on what you're after. I tend to also like, you know, Andrew Chen, I read his blog. I'm sure a lot of your uh, folks do. Brianna Kimmel also is great. And she recently published a blog post, which is great around B2B SaaS as well. I tend to dig into more of those types of things and more on a utility basis. Like I want to specifically read about a thing and I'll go learn about the thing. But yeah, there's a lot of good resources out there like that. What other name, another B2B marketing blog that you like to read apart from the one you mentioned? Oh man, I would have to take a look at my inbox. I don't know if I read a lot of purely marketing blogs. That's the thing. Like I read a lot of VC blogs, I read a lot of startup blogs. (laughs) Yeah. What's your favorite startup blog? 
Um, I like Thomas Tungas. I think they're short, they're easy, and they usually send you down a rabbit hole and like link into other stuff. Oh man, there there are many more I'm forgetting to mention and that I'll get in trouble for, I'm sure. But that's all good. <laughs> a good place to start. Thanks so much for sharing all of that. Final question, Hannah. Uh, where can listeners connect with you, learn more from you? Honestly, if you Google me, Hannah Abaza, um, my website will come up. I'm super easy to find on social. I'm um, just a quick search and I should be the first one that pops up. And how do you spell your name? H-A-N-A-A-B-A-Z-A. -A it's probably the name with the most A's in the world. It's all A's. <laughs> Only vowel in there. Brilliant. Well, uh, Hannah, once again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review It means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. 
See you on the other side.